Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Manza, and for the fourth installment of the series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I, today I'm going to talk about the Spanish consul in Jerusalem, Conde de Bayobar. Antonio de la Sierva y Levita, also known as Conde de Bayobar, set out the first time for the Holy Land on July 26, 1913 by train. The fate of the Ottoman Empire was not yet doomed. However, as we saw in the previous episodes, the empire in which the Spanish diplomat came to live was in its final stages of life. Bayobar arrived in Jerusalem in an extremely problematic period for the Ottomans, who were constantly assaulted by internal and external threats. Now, Bayobar is an historical agent quickly disappeared from the stage of British rule Palestine after Allenby took over and Bayobar enjoyed a bit of a life at the center stage, he simply disappeared from historical chronicles. But for a short while, he was both a witness and an active actor in the context of wartime Palestine and Jerusalem. In fairness, not much has been written about him, in fact, apart from the publication of his diary in 1996, originally in Spanish, by Eduardo Manzano Moreno, 
the addition I bumped into when I was researching the topic back in the day, it was only tangentially present and often misspelled in some publications. It clearly never stood center stage in any professional historical research and certainly not in any historical podcast. Let's go back for a few minutes to Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era and Jerusalem during the war. So, remember, going back to episode one of the series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I, late Ottoman Jerusalem was part of the region of Damascus, which included Palestine. And essentially, it was assimilated into the administrative structure of the empire right after the Ottoman conquest of Bilad Sham or Greater Syria in 1517. Now, in time, the Ottomans established several uh, sort of institutions in order to uh, rule the region. And I think one of the most important to remember is the sort of a soft power devolved to the local notables. Those importance continued until the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, and essentially continued even after, perhaps in different ways. Now, if you remember, Palestine and Jerusalem underwent some significant changes, uh, particularly in the 19th century as a result of the Tanzimat reforms, and also as a result of the uh, short-lived Egyptian rules, which lasted for a decade. What is important about that period if you remember, is that we do see the emergence of local uh, institutions to uh, rule and regulate uh, the city of Jerusalem, the surrounding areas, and the region at large. So the most important administrative figure for the area was the Mutusaraflik of Jerusalem. And the governorate was ruled by a Mutasarif, appointed directly by Istanbul. At the same time, Parallel to the various administrative reforms and units present in Jerusalem, we saw a grow and a growing presence of foreigners coming from all parts of Europe and at large from the Western world. It started with uh, an enlarging diplomatic presence with establishment of consulates, but also with arrival of pilgrims first, and then tourists, and indeed various kinds of settlers. At the beginning, mostly Christians, who basically came to settle down while waiting for the end of the times. But we also saw the arrival of the first waves of Zionists from Central Europe and Eastern Europe, where following a wave of pogroms and violence against the Jews, many tried to escape that violence moving into Ottoman Palestine. And as we said at the very beginning of this series, many of these uh, Jews, early Zionists, in fact, took Ottoman citizenship. Numbers are still debated amongst historians, but many did and served even in the Ottoman army during World War I in different capacities. The most famous one is certainly David Ben-Gurion, who served in the Ottoman army and you know, eventually became one of the founding fathers of the State of Israel in 1948. We also remember, going back to that episode one of the series, the question of the capitulations, which essentially were restrictive measures, or at least de developed into restrictive measures imposed by Europeans. Originally, these were contracts signed by Europeans with the Ottomans. 
And that define what we may call foreign interference in, in the area. Now, Bayobar believed the capitulations to be necessary in order to perform his duties. And in fact, he also believed that he, capitulations were necessary for Europeans to deal with the Ottomans. By late 1914, Jerusalem services like post offices and higher education were in fact in the hands of Europeans who promoted their own interest. These services were open to the local population, and this is important to remember. But I think the most important uh, aspect here to underline is that they were foremost for Europeans. And it's only tangentially they were offered to the local population. In the summer of that year, remember, the Ottoman government used the outbreak of the war in Europe to abolish the capitulary system throughout the empire, which also triggered mass demonstration in favor of the Ottoman government. Now, people like Bayobar believe that the abolition of a capitulation could or might have had repercussions on Christian communities. A local Christians to believe that could have been a problem, but eventually, with the fact that the Ottoman Empire joined the war, we didn't see any major issue revolving around the capitulations unfolding uh, throughout the Ottoman lands during the war. Capitulations were abolished on October 1st, 1914, and in the city of Jerusalem, the order was read by the governor, Majid Shevket, who also wrote to the foreign consuls, including Bayobar, informing them of the closure of the foreign post offices, which was tantamount to the abolition of the most visible capitulary privileges. There was an Ottoman post office, but all the correspondence was essentially dealt with and managed by foreign uh, postal services, the Austrians, the Belgian, the British, and so forth. And if you remember, going back to the first episode of the series, the imperial order which abolished the capitulation was read to the people of Jerusalem in an official ceremony, which was reported by Bayobar, held in the garden of a municipality. And after the governor read the document, Said Alusaini, a local member of the Ottoman parliament, delivered a speech on the value of this measure, but also asked the crowd to show respect for foreigners. As elsewhere in the empire, the abrogation of the capitulations was hailed as the beginning of a new era. Religious orders, foreign clergy, and laity had to deal with this new situation without relying on any foreign help. Foreign citizens were threatened with expulsions, and many indeed were kicked out of the empire. And Jews began a movement of Ottomanization. Many already adopted Ottoman citizenship. Many began to adopt it, that same citizenship right at the beginning of the war. Bayobar, Glazebrook, the American consul, remained, while all other consuls left. The Italian one remained for a short period of time until Italy joined the war effort in 1915. And also Glazebrook, if you remember, left in 1917. But certainly among you know, all of the various uh, diplomatic repre representations in Jerusalem, uh, the largest majority left, and only these two uh, who acquired the protections of uh, the, the consulates that left, were certainly the most important. It is true that among the local Christians, 
whether Ottoman subjects or not, panic spread rapidly, following the abolition of a capitulation. As demonstrations against the Europeans started to be staged throughout the city. But Bayobart noted, in Jerusalem things did not turn as violent as in other parts of the empire. And we must note that Bayobar witnessed many events that were described in, I would say, politicized narratives after the war in very radical different ways. And he provides us with a more nuanced view and understanding of certain events. For instance, the famous evacuation of Jaffa, also mentioned by Glazebrook, which in uh, I would say, traditional uh, Zionist historiography has been portrayed some sort of a, uh, a, as a massacre in a way where Jews were deported from Jaffa. Well, we know that from both Bayobar and Glazebrook that actually unfolded in a very different way. Jews, like Arabs, or locals essentially were asked to leave. Many Jews traveled throughout the country and some perished along the way. Arabs tried to find refuge around Jaffa and tried to you know, go back after the military operations were over. So again, what is important here is to understand that people like Bayobar provides us with important and valuable historical information, and particularly on events that occurred in Jerusalem and around Palestine during the war, giving us uh, a different perspective, more details. So Bayobar often discussed in his diary the military aspects of the conflict, once the Ottomans join the war. And I think it is important going back to uh, uh, briefly outline the situation on the battlefield and just to describe some events preceding the war itself. So the outbreak of the First World War was not the first incident in which the Ottoman Empire was challenged, both internally and externally. Remember, first we have the 1908 revolutions, which overthrew Sultan Abdulhamid II, we also have an attempt uh, of a counter-revolution. But more importantly, between 1911 and 1913, the Ottomans were attacked essentially three times. First by the Italians, and so the Ottomans lost Libya. Later on, in 1912, by a coalition of Balkan countries. And finally, in 1913, following another conflict in the Balkans, the leadership of the empire changed, and they were able to actually regain some of the losses of the, 19, of the, 18, of the 8, 1912 uh, conflict. And by 1913, uh, we can talk about the Committee of Union and Progress, a government which essentially was a military dictatorship, a government that was run by a number of people, but ahead at the very top, a small number of individuals who ran the empire. One of them was very important, and it became very important for Jerusalem, Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman governor of Syrian Palestine throughout the war, who became some sort of a friend with Conde uh, de uh, Bayobar. The two exchanged many uh, gatherings. They met many times and certainly had you know, plenty of conversations, and some of them are reported in the diary. Let's go back to the war, because I think that's the key moment when Bayobar becomes crucial in, in the story, uh, in the history of Jerusalem, reporting 
not just on the military operation, but also on the local conditions of the city. In order to understand what Biobar tells us in the diary and to make sense of their entries, which often are personal, are about his own personal problems throughout the war, and only superficially take into account uh, uh, the problems experienced by the people on a daily basis. Let's look at Antonio de la Sierva y Levita, Conde de Bayobar, the historical figure. So let me give you a short biography. Antonio de la Sierva y Levita, also known as Conde de Bayobar and Duke de Terranova, was born in Vienna in 1885. Now, it's interesting that his mother was an Austrian of Jewish origin. Obviously, can be easily spotted in, in the name, Ilevita. But the mother converted to the Catholic faith. His father was a Spanish military attaché to the Spanish embassy in the Austrian capital. Biobar had been educated in Saragossa and in 1911 entered the Spanish consular service and he was originally appointed as vice-consul to Cuba. In May 1913, Bayobar was then appointed consul in Jerusalem. According to his personal file, he began at the consulate in August 1913, though he then traveled for several months before settling down in Jerusalem, and he remained until the end of 1919. When Bayobar reached Jerusalem, Istakusk was limited to the protection of Spanish interest, mainly religious in nature, and to re-establish what, uh, between inverted commas, we can say diplomatic and more friendly relations with the custody of the Holy Land. I will talk about later about the custody, which is a, obviously a Christian Catholic institution, and I would probably I should add, it is a Franciscan institution, and a very important one. By the time the British occupied Jerusalem in December 1917, he found himself the only consul in the city. In fact, he became uh, uh, some sort of a universal consul in charge of the protection of the interests of all countries involved in the war. Glazebrook, as we saw uh, in the previous episode, remained in the city until the Americans joined the war against Germany in April 1917. And after he left, Bayobar became a crucial personality. But, as we will see throughout the podcast, rapidly faded away. Biobar was at the center of the city. His narrative tells us not just about himself, about the city, about the people. And we get a sense that he was well known among the locals. But after the war, he simply disappeared. In January 1920, Bayobar took charge of a Spanish consulate in Damascus. However, in November of the same year, he moved to Tangiers, where he served for a few months. In 1920, he married Rafaela Osorio de Moscoso, Duchess of Terranova. And on June 24, 1921, Bayobar resigned his commission as consul and moved back to Spain. Bayobar back then was asked basically was commissioned to carry out a report on the Spanish convents and hospitals in Palestine. And in 1925, he produced this report, but then disappeared from the Spanish consular service. 
Until 1936, we know that he took an extended leave of absence, which is reported in his file as a excedente voluntario, leave of absence. According to his family, who I had the privilege to interview a few years back and also to meet his surviving daughters, Biobar went back to Spain where he took care of a family business. His wife was not really eager to raise their five children while traveling around the world, and so they mostly lived in Botorita, a small village in the outskirts of Saragossa, where Biobar took care of his agricultural land. His daughter, Maria Isabel, recalled that in the Botorita, Biobar grew a olive tree. That, according to what he told her, was taken from the Garden of the Gethsemane. Now, we don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, given the context of the war and given the religiosity of Biobar, we can speculate that probably he was able to take a, an olive tree from the Gethsemane and, you know, take it back to Spain and plant it uh, over there. We don't know. Certainly, these decades, the 1920s and 30s, was very complex also from the point of view of the Spanish uh, politics. In August 1936, Bayobar decided to publicly support Francisco Franco and his Junta de Defensa Nacional de España. My speculation is that he supported Franco mostly because Franco was seen as being against the left-wing Popular Front, which won the election just a few months earlier. Not necessarily because of their political affiliations with the right. Due to some anti-clerical violence against the church, which took place after the elections, I'd say that it's not surprising that the pious Bayobar supported Franco. But Bayobar remained a strong supporter of the monarchy. And his support for the new regime, I'm pretty sure, was more of a convenience than of belief. From August 1936, Bayobar was first appointed to the diplomatic cabinet of the Junta and then as Secretary of External Relations for Franco Foreign Office. So he continued this some sort of a diplomatic career. During the interwar period and in the 1940s, Bayobar mainly worked at the Spanish Foreign Office with a particular interest in the relations with the Holy See. So once again connected with the church environment. During this time, Bayobar was offered important positions as consul around the world, including Canada and the United States, but he did not accept these appointments. Bayobar's wife was not really ready to move, and the education of her children was more important. Furthermore, he asked for short leaves of absence, which he alternated with short periods at the Spanish Foreign Office. However, in 1948, following a terrorist attack carried out by the Haganah, against the Semiramis Hotel in Jerusalem, which killed Manuel Allende Salazar, the Spanish Vice Consul in Jerusalem, which happened to be the brother of Bayobar daughter's husband, Jose Allende Salazar, he accepted to become once again consul in Jerusalem. So in May 1949, Bayobar was now appointed as consul in Jerusalem, and he accepted this new position, and he served in Jerusalem until 1952. 
This helped also Franco and his regime to establish some sort of relations with uh, the Israelis. But remember that Bayobar and his consulate were in what now we call East Jerusalem, so in the Jordanian part of the city. In 1952, moved back to Spain, where he was uh, uh, then appointed director of the Obra Pia, until he retired in 1955. Bayobar eventually died in Madrid in 1971, aged 86. His life has been very rich and very interesting. And while it's hard to say that Jerusalem had been central to his life, given that he spent most of his time in Spain, I would say that if, it's, if not in terms of uh, years, Jerusalem has been central to his life for different reasons. One, because it shaped his character. And secondly, because Jerusalem brought him back. Jerusalem took him back to active diplomatic service. Let's look now to the other sides uh, of his job. I mentioned earlier that one of the important reasons uh, and one of the most important jobs that he had as consul, obviously before the outbreak of the war, was to re-establish, I would say, cordial relations with the custody of the Holy Land. In the podcast, we never really touched upon the custody other than here and there with a few information. So perhaps it's worth mentioning uh, here a little bit of history of this institution. So central to Bayobar's mission in Jerusalem was the protection and support of the custody of the Holy Land, and in particular, its Spanish clergy and properties. Among the Christian institution of Jerusalem, Custodia Terra Sante, or the custody of the Holy Land, this had some of the deepest roots in the religious social fabric of the city. The custody belonged to the Franciscan order, founded as a Franciscan province during the 13th century by St. Francis of Assisi himself. Since its establishment, the highest authority of the custody, known as the custos, the custodian, has always been an Italian subject. And membership of the council, which regulated and still regulates the life of the custody, was also based on nationality. In the period of World War I, the custody was administered by a discretary composed of the custos, one French vicar, one Spanish, Spanish uh, procurator, and six members, one Italian, one French, one Spanish, one German, and after 1921, one British and one Arabic-speaking member. National identity within the custody is central. And I never had any problem defining uh, the custody as some sort of a non-profit multinational corporation, because that's exactly the nature of, of, of this institution. Now, the custos, the custodian, had religious jurisdiction over the Catholics of Palestine, parts of Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Rhodes, which meant a degree of competition with the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. The Custos, alongside the Greek Orthodox Patriarch and the Armenian Patriarch, were responsible for the enforcement of the famous status quo regarding all the holy places. 
The Council had a complex relationship with the European governments, and the balance in the ruling council of the custody was quite fragile, as these governments attempted through their members to influence the institution. However, it was the very nature of the custody as a transnational organization, which had protected its existence throughout the centuries to sort of uh, see these battles unfold within the council. As an institution ruled by Ottoman law, the custody was not allowed to own properties such as convents, schools, and other buildings. In fact, only individual clergy were allowed to own properties in their personal name, and the decision as to who should be entitled to ownership was taken by the custody once again according to nationality. And that's why the role of consul is crucial in their relationship with the custody. The international character of the custody meant that every decision was subject to international scrutiny. During the war, however, the custody was left somewhat to its own devices because all of the other consuls left. And even from a physical perspective, we, we can say uh, the custody was cut off because there was no longer mail coming in. And, and the mail that was coming in was heavily censored. Although the Spanish and Austrian consul did intervene to support the, cost, the custody when it felt harassed by Ottoman authorities, once again, as I said earlier, the institution essentially began to function on its own. During the war, Spain donated at least 60,000 French francs to the custody, while the central powers, and primarily Austria as a Catholic country, supported the organization both financially and materially. When the conflict broke out, the Ottoman army began to seize buildings and properties of the custody in Jerusalem and in Palestine. There had all of his property had been registered in the name of the clergy of allied citizens. The Vatican, concerned with the future of the Holy Land, urged Cardinal Dolci to explain to the Ottoman authorities that an infringement upon property rights was to be considered an act of defiance against the Vatican State, which claimed ownership of his properties contrary to Ottoman terms. Because it was customary for the, the father custodian, the Costus, to keep a diary of events, actually it's possible to study the custody throughout the war. Now, the Costum himself left at the beginning of the hostilities, and the diary was maintained by Father Eutimio Castellani between 1914 and 1918, and it was written in the form of a chronicle and include notes, updates, and uh, these are mainly written on a daily basis. Following the Ottoman government's entrance into war, the custody found itself isolated internationally. The financial situation of the custody began to worsen, and hence the, the Spanish and Austrian help. And remember, the custody took care of local parishes. So many local Christians, mostly Arab Christians, were obviously attached to the custody because the custody provided them with valuable uh, source of income. So by early September 1914, the custody reduced the activities of their workshops, producing wheat, fabrics, and other commodities, dropping the wages of their employees by 15%. In November of the same year, Ottoman authorities ordered religious congregations scattered around Jerusalem to gather in the city center. 
And Bayobar began to write letters and complain about all of these decisions. The Franciscans hosted three clergymen in the convent of St. Saviour. And the clergywomen, the Franciscans hosted the clergymen in the convent of St. Saviour and the clergywomen in the Casanova. A few days later, the police registered all names of a clergy living in the two houses. Local police visiting the convents became a common event throughout the war. And often the purpose of, uh, uh, of these visits were to seize provisions and supplies. For instance, with winter approaching, we know from both the Chronicles and Bayubar, the military requisitions corps from the custody. And their mill worked for five days in order to supply the Ottoman troops in Jerusalem with flour and bread. The Ottoman military seized nearly all properties, including both buildings and supplies. And essentially, we can say that the, the custody was mobilized for the war effort, even though was obviously as a religious institution, was not part of the conflict. Ottomans also seized schools, convents and hospitals as part of the process of mobilizations, particularly to use these buildings for soldiers. When Italy joined the war alongside the Allies, the situation became even worse. As the Ottomans saw the Vatican as an ally of the Italian government, they began to encroach even further into Catholic properties, particularly the properties of the Latin Patriarchate and on the custody of the Holy Land. Ottoman authorities ordered that all clerics of Italian nationality must leave Jerusalem. The few British and French missionaries among the Franciscans had already been ordered to leave in 1914, though their departure was permanently delayed thanks to external intervention, mostly also because of Bayobar and Glazebrook, the American consul. As a result, in 1915, the Franciscans living in the city comprised 72 Italians, 31 Spanish, 17 Ottoman subjects, 13 Germans, 5 Dutch, 4 Portuguese and 3 Americans. Although the Ottoman order only related to males, he also started, stated that all nuns, the women, were not nuns and the male children below 18 years of age who may desire must also be sent out of the country. And many left. And Bayobar organized many of the trips of this clergy. In 1916, the custody suffered a tremendous blow. In April, the pharmacy at St. Saviour was looted and then closed down. Ottoman troops later occupied St. Saviour and Casanova, which were subsequently converted into hospital for the Ottoman troops, leaving only 10 rooms in the two convents for the use of friars and nuns. Despite the precarious conditions, the custody continued to run a soup kitchen for Jerusalemites, which worked alongside the one provided by the American colony. As the activities of the custody were reduced drastically, the entries in the diary kept by the president of the custody also fell, and mainly dealt with the news coming from around Jerusalem. Realizing that the British army was not far away in 1917, uh, particularly after the evacuation of Jaffa in March of the same year, many, including Bayobar, began to hope for the British to arrive and free Jerusalem. And this is also written in the Chronicles of the Franciscans. Not necessarily they like the British, you know, the Franciscans as Catholics, so the British as Anglican and basically Protestant, 
but they they wanted to see Jerusalem free from uh, the Ottoman presence. Now the relationship between Bayobar and the custody is very much informed by the relationship between Spain and the custody of the Holy Land. And as I said earlier, the reasons behind Bayobar's central mission of aiding the custody of the Holy Land can be found in the relationship between the custody and Spain, which basically dates back once again to the 13th century, when Spain was still divided into several kingdoms. And in fact, parts of the Iberian Peninsula were still under Islamic rule. Now, as I said earlier, you know, the Spanish presence within the custody is only second to the Italian one. In the 18th century, the relationship between the custody uh, of the Holy Land and uh, the Spanish uh, monarchy, the real casa of Spain, changed. With the arrival of the Bourbons on the Spanish throne, donations to the religious institution in the Holy Land grew as did the power of the Spanish friars. In fact, in 1746, Pope Benedict XIV defined some Spanish rights inside the custody, deciding that in six convents, the superior should be a Spanish national. It was also decided that the Procuratore Generale, the financial administration, in other words, would be Spanish. A few decades later, under Charles III, Spanish policy towards the custody of the Holy Land changed once again. The Spanish king issued the real cedula, which for the first time not only regulated the relationship between the state and the church, but also had a large impact on the missionary activities of the Spanish abroad. Charles III claimed to be a descendant of Robert of Anjou, and essentially asserting the title of King of Jerusalem and protector of the holy places of Jerusalem. The title disappeared in, 20, in uh, 1291 uh, with the end of a crusader presence in the Middle East. Yet, it doesn't matter. This was a... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sort of a claim. Most importantly, Charles III gave himself the right to name missionaries and also the custos, which normally this was a decision taken by the Franciscan order itself. In 1787, Charles III managed to have Pope Pius VI recognize his claims, all of them, only to see some of them revoked in 1794. And I think the most important is related to the uh, uh, election of the Custos, which went back to be an Italian subject. Now, Charles III did not win his political battle, but did establish the Obra Pia de Jerusalem, which was tasked with collecting donations for Spanish clergy in the Holy Land. And this Obra Pia still works today. It's part of a Spanish state and still collects money for the Spanish clergy. The money collected was then sent to the Procuratore, again, the, the financial uh, administrator, who managed both the Spanish money and the money collected around the world to support the custody. If by any chance you're a Catholic, you probably remember that during uh, Good Friday, there's a special collection dedicated to the custody of the Holy Land. So the money that goes to the, the custody is collected once a year on a Good Friday. This created major divisions within the custody. And slowly a number of convents became so-called Spanish because the majority of the clergy was of Spanish nationality. Now, this was never really recognized by the Vatican or the custody, but it certainly was a reality on the ground. In fact, it's the, only in the 1980s uh, that the Vatican recognized Spanish ownership of several properties. And eventually the Spanish government abandoned claims of protection of the holy places. Now, by the beginning of the 20th century, the relationship between the Spanish clergy and other nationalities were poor and at times actually non-existent, and in some cases, they even were violent. We do have plenty of examples where, uh, you know, monks fought against each other, and the Ottomans had obviously to intervene uh, as a police force in order to uh, stop the fighting between the various uh, uh, clergy. In fact, the custos, uh, Roberto Razzoli, wrote in 1906 that the custody was in a state of anarchy. Other reports mentioned that things were not great, and uh, for instance, a report by Bernardino Klumper, a German friar who visited the custody a few years later in 1909, claimed that the largest internal conflict within the custody was caused by a minority of Italian and Spanish monks, who essentially sought to control every relevant position uh, in, in, in the custody itself. So what we have is a series of international scaffolds which were not just uh, local, uh, locally based, 
but also had you know sort of an international dimension because uh, these were reported by the, the friars to via consuls and eventually there were debates in the parliament whether of Italy or Spain and other European countries. In 1914, the relations between Spain and the custody reached possibly their lowest point. The newly appointed Father Custus, Honorato Carcaterra, obviously in Italian, was given a papal authority through a decree, cum nos, uh, to reform the custody and reestablish order within the Franciscan family. But again, it was not exactly an easy task. Besides, the war started and that interrupted the process, but in a sense also changed the internal dynamics and later on changed also the future of, of the custody itself. A new sort of internal government was formed in 1914 by the time of the death of Pius X, uh, which meant, again, uh, not just the suspension of any activity due to the outbreak of the war, but also because uh, the custody by constitution could not operate until a new pope would have been elected. Not only that, uh, essentially Bayobar took the decisions not to recognize any change because of the war and because of his lack of a communication with his own country, Spain, but also with uh, other European countries and the Vatican included. Bayobar was sent to replace the previous Spanish consul, Casares, who was not seen as good enough in promoting Spanish interests within, uh, you know, the sort of a, the Jerusalem environment between Spain and the custody. And to many, uh, Casares was also too strong and essentially not soft enough. So it sounds like a contradiction, but it always depends on, on the point of view. And it did not really foster relations between the two. Now, the change between Casares and, and Bayobar did not really mean a radical change. However, there is a chance, uh, and there was a chance, uh, for, the, uh, for the two institutions uh, to actually try to reach an agreement. What certainly fostered better relations was uh, the Italian consul, Seni, who was much more accommodating and worked fairly well with the Spanish consul, Bayobar. Obviously, Seni left uh, Jerusalem in 1915 when Italy joined the war effort. And, and again, you know, the whole situation came to a halt and uh, uh, as a result of the war. Now, tension was often high, but again, the war paradoxically changed the nature of that tension. And instead of looking inward within the custody, tension now began to look outward and the relationship with the Ottoman uh, institutions and particularly with the Ottoman army. The relationship between the custody, the Vatican, and Spain were never easy. And, you know, if we assess the role of Bayobar throughout the war, we can say that Bayobar played his role uh, sort of as a Spanish emissary. And, you know, he appears to be a man whose only purpose was to protect Spanish interests and to expand them throughout the region. But I would say that eventually, as a result of the war, his role is different and, you know, was different uh, as it unfolded. 
Probably, without the war, Biobar would have simply acted as an historical agent, tried to promote Spanish interests, fight uh, the Italians, and, and once again reestablish uh, sort of Spanish rights in the Holy Land. But the war changed that nature. Now, let me say a few things about Biobar, the Jews, and Zionism. Given that Biobar's mother was a converted Jew, and the particular region and period in which the diary unfolded, many may certainly wonder whether the Spanish consul was pro or anti-Zionist. Same question that we dealt with uh, uh, the American consul, uh, Otis Glazebrook. And it is a, a legitimate question, but one I would say that has no clear answer. Bayobar first held the Jews as needy citizens of wartime Jerusalem. He was then put in charge of distributing the financial help to the Jews, which mainly came from the United States once his American colleague, Glazebrook, left Jerusalem as a consequence of the breaking of the diplomatic relations between the United States and the Ottoman Empire in the spring of 1917. Nevertheless, neither in the diary nor in other sources is there any evidence of his position on Zionism. It appears from some entries in the diary that he was afraid that Zionism could be an element of instability on, in the region. But on the other hand, the Spanish consul was very familiar with the Jewish colonies in Palestine, which he visited several times, and on which he had uh, uh, you know, a variety of opinions, while still respecting their achievements. Besides visiting colonies and administering aid to the Jewish residents of Jerusalem and Palestine, Bayobar became a historical agent and a crucial source for the history of the Jews in Palestine during that particular period of time. Let's start with the example of the evacuation of Jaffa that I mentioned earlier, a crucial episode in the war for the Jewish community. On 29 March 1917, Bayobar received a small group of Spaniards from Jaffa, who informed him that while visiting Jaffa two days earlier, the Mutasarif of Jerusalem, the governor of Jerusalem, announced the order of the evacuation of the city issued by Jamal Pasha. And this is an event that, if you remember, I mentioned also uh, in relation to Otis Glazebrook, because this I event was portrayed, particularly by, by the Zionists, as a, a sort of an attempted massacre of the local Jewish population of Jaffa. But both o Glazebrook and particularly Bayobar, who investigated the matter directly, actually reported in a very different way, uh, suggesting that, according to what they witnessed, the Jews, like the local Arabs, were evacuated. The Jews were moved to the colonies, the Jewish colonies up north in Galilee, where the Arabs essentially moved around Jaffa, and right after the, the military arrival of the British, they tried to go back to the properties. And it's true that many Jews did not do uh, the same, certainly up until the end of the war. The principal reason for the evacuation, according to the Ottoman authorities, but also according to Bayobar, was a possible attack against the city by the British. And many in German and Austrian circles thought this was a policy to force the Jews of Jaffa to leave. Despite various interpretations of these events, what really matters is how the news of the evacuation of Jaffa reached Europe and America, and also Bayobar's role in all of this. So the British received news through Aaron Aronson, who was a Jewish Ottoman agronomist who was in charge of a small network of spies in Palestine, and he, and he wrote uh, to back to Britain, says, Tel Aviv has been sacked. 10,000 Palestinian Jews are now without home and food. 
Jamal, Jamal Pasha, has publicly stated Armenian policy will now be applied to Jews. Now, news that the Jewish community of Palestine was on the verge of annihilation quickly spread throughout the world. Comment and reportage in the intent and neutral press, however, were less concerned with establishing, uh, with establishing the truth than with conveying the impression that Palestine had been devastated, the Jews being the sacrificial victims of the Ottomans. Well, in Germany too, the allies of the Ottoman Empire, concern grew and a press campaign was staged trying to undo the damage caused. The Germans even called for the establishment of a commission of inquiry. Neutral countries like Spain, the Netherlands, where sympathies towards the intent and central powers were divided, were called to investigate the matter. And that's where we see the role of Biobar. Now, a commission never materialized. However, on June 11, Biobar received a cable from the Spanish embassy in Istanbul asking him to, ready, to, to be ready to investigate and write a report on the situation regarding the Jews in Palestine. Now, some historians didn't really care too much about reading, you know, first of all, trying to find the diary and trying to read the, the, the material produced by the Spanish consul. Uh, and so his investigation simply uh, disappeared. What Biobar wrote and the document, in fact, is available in the British archives, says it is not true that there have been massacres or persecution of Jews, such as in Syria and Palestine, and obviously he's referring to Jaffa here, but that the Jews have only shared the same lot as the Christians owing to the application of a measure taken by the military authorities with regard to the evacuation of those districts. Interestingly, as I mentioned in the episode about Glazebrook, Glazebrook too was invited to write a report on the events of Jaffa. Even though he left Jerusalem in late May 1970, he had previously stated that the acts of violence, and I'm quoting, said to have been committed against the Jewish population of Jaffa are grossly exaggerated. So Bayubar's small role in all of this, which should have been crucial, was almost entirely ignored. The press once again reported nothing of a report he produced, and in subsequent years his historical agency has almost and completely disappeared. Let me say a few things about the question of diaries. Now, the diary of the Spanish consul uh, is very important, but I believe that it should be read together with other diaries mentioned by previous guests of the podcast. For instance, the diary of Isan Turjman, which was mentioned both by Avigai uh, Jacobson and Salim Tamari, and as well as the memoir of Wasif Juaria, as we talked about uh, uh, the memoirs with uh, Isam Nassar and once again with, with Salim Tamari. All of these diaries and memoirs really gives us a sense of how Jerusalem looked like during the war. Now, every source gives us a sort of different angle and perspective. So one exercise that I tried, and you, know, you may want to do it yourself, is to look at dates and periods and sort of like to overlap what Bayubar, what Turjman, what Juaria wrote about sometimes the same day, the same week, the same period of time, and get a sense of how different individuals lived and perceived the city. One thing which is quite clear is that if 
the events they experienced were exactly the same. I will now read a few entries from the diary, and if you can compare you know, some of the dates with, again, Wasif Juria, Isan Turjmani, and hopefully with entries of other diaries and memoirs that we will discover in the future, we all hope one day to find also perhaps a diary or a memoir by a local Palestinian woman that would add a sort of different dimension. Well, we'll perhaps see that the events shared were exactly the same, maybe in different ways, with different ideas and different understanding. So, to date, you know, like Wasif Juria memoir and Isan Trujman were the only uh, diary and memoirs produced by local residents of, of Jerusalem, the diary of Bayobar is the only diary produced by a Western resident of Jerusalem. We may have some chronicles here and there, but you know, not really in the form of a diary, recording also emotions, sounds, noise, smells, feelings, other than facts. And so, uh, you know, we also have to be aware of the fact that all of these individuals obviously were biased by their own religion, by their own ideas, politics, views, by how they experienced the day, by, by, by their views of others. Certainly Bayobars, you know, was an Orientalist in that sense, didn't really have much appreciations for the local Arabs, even though in time you can see and appreciate changes throughout the dialect. As I turn the page of a diary to a paragraph, I want to just say that the Palestine life of Bayobar was driven very much by his sense of duty and personality. He was passionate about his job, and the diary reflects his practiced pessimism, which sometimes is even funny. There's a sense of humor about it. And at the same time, his youthful confidence. In the end, his writings are the embodiment of one man's life and one city's history, which makes them unique and invaluable. December 3rd, 1914. Today I've acted as a politician, a diplomat, and almost as a fraud. Last night I received a telegram from Mr. Venizelos, the Greek Prime Minister, in which he announced to me the arrival of Mr. Raphael, as a Greek general consul in Jerusalem. You need a sense of humor to come to Jerusalem at this point. His arrival gladdens me very much because it believes it relieves me of the protection of the Greek interests, which, given the enmity the Turks professed for them, was an assignment of some concern. I send my kavas, a bed, to Jaffa to wait for the new colleague and his visit was in style of that famous villager who went out to kill two birds with one stone. I don't know who the bird's first bird would be, but the second turned out to be Umar Effendi Bitar, the mayor of Jaffa, removed from office by the Kaimakan of that city. Dear Umar came here afterwards and did us the great service I am going to recount. Last night, at 11, I received a telegram from Kübler informing me that the Kaimakan had sent a communication to Father Matteo Breo, superior of the convent St. Peter's of Jaffa. Kübler, the vice-consul, announced that if he did not evacuate 
Within 24 hours, he would occupy the convent by force. They handed me the telegram when I was already in bed, and between natural indignation at the arbitrary measure and a bad mood at having my sleep interrupted, I sent a telegram to Kubler, ordering him that in case this little chieftain refused to listen to his petition to wait for the matter to be resolved in Constantinople, he should raise the Spanish flag over the convent and seal the door with the consulate seal. So this morning, Umar arrived, and right away negotiations began that resulted in the following plan. I wrote a letter to the governor of Jerusalem begging him to write to the Kaimakan of Jaffa so that he would suspend the execution of his threat, and Umar himself took the letter with a little gift. In view of this, His Excellency sent the requested telegram also forbidding the closure of the Ramla school, which was also threatened. After Umar came to let me know all about this, we agreed that he would see the governor again to see if he would consent to send his official mail a coded letter of mine directed to our ambassador in Constantinople, in which I would ask that they work on the removal of the Kaimakan from Jaffa, with whom His Excellency the Governor was also on bad terms, would stop. We said goodbye, and in a little while the Governor's Secretary came in to ask me to telegraph and write forcefully to Constantinople against the Kaimakan of Jaffa. I can scarcely relate the impression this offensive-defensive alliance with Majid Bey made on me. But more important was my victory yesterday. An aide of Zaki Bey's named Nur al-Din Effendi, chief of police, came to tell me that they were going to search the archives of the general French consulate. I immediately sent a very strong letter to Zaki himself, such that the military types began to doubt it was necessary to take such a serious step, especially when I told them that I would receive them with gunfire, those who entered or tried to enter the consulate. I showed them a pistol, which naturally was not loaded, since I didn't have any cartridge. In addition, I sent a message to the governor saying that he should turn over my passport if they were determined to jump on top of everything, that is to say, presenting my resignation as consul. The news of my energetic attitude immediately ran through the city and was celebrated with an outburst of passion. Father Anastasi contributed to this since he told everyone about it all in secrecy. In short, the French archives are saved for the moment and the telegram from the embassy charging me to energetically oppose the operation was satisfactorily fulfilled. Let's look at June 1915. Locust, as I'm reading the Bible, it serves as an illustration to see the millions and millions of little locusts that one sees everywhere in the country and in the city, and will wind up leaving not a blade of grass in this country. The olive trees, the vineyards, the sown fields and orchards, they have eaten everything, and I ask myself, what will be able to eat this summer? The defense that the members of the American colony of the U.S. consulate have made of their gardens has been truly heroic, and I do not plan to forget 
the system employed in case some time, God forbid, this terrible plague visits my farms. The diary is rich with information about the city, the surrounding, Palestine itself. Not just the military events, but what was happening on a daily basis. But let me skip to December 8, 1917, on the eve of the British capture of Jerusalem. Bayobar says, if I'm still alive in a few days, a thing I do not know, I will be able to tell many very curious tales. It's six in the afternoon and I doubt very much that I'll be able to eat peacefully and above all, sleep tonight. Oh, really, it's nothing at all that's going on now. I'll make a bit of history, which this time can be said to be a real thing. So this morning at 2.30, cannon fire began, which very quickly became generalized and in which was joined by fire from machine guns and even rifles. The poor Turkish soldiers, the injured men that were passing by in front of my house were on foot, holding their wounds with their hands, full of blood, haggard. An officer came by on horseback with his arm bandaged and his body sustained by three soldiers on foot. The officer's face expressed the most horrible suffering. He, just as the soldiers and the wounded, went with his head down and looking sad, very sad. By nine o'clock this morning the fire had ceased in the part where I live, and the enemy had been pushed back. Nonetheless, on the leader side, towards the German colony, it continued in great intensity. I went to the German consulate where Zimke and Kübler were planning their departure. Let me skip ahead here, towards this, towards the end of this very long entry, discussing what happened in that very crucial day. It's still the day of the Immaculate Conception, at 8.30 p.m. Everything is quiet by now, except the cannon shots fired at regular intervals, to which I alluded. I've gone up to the terrace of the consulate, and from there I have seen and admired the sleeping city. It's not a bad dream I'm having. Some lights in houses, the splendor of a bonfire in Ratisbon, the starry sky, not a breath of air, nor another sound but the barking of stray dogs. I'm beginning to believe that all of this is an hallucination, and I have dreamed the bombardment, the panic in the streets. But no, it isn't panic. I mean, a dream that I had. I'm almost convinced that the British have not entered the city, at least not in all of it. If that were so, from where do they justify the famous cannon shots? After the detonation of a cannon fire, one always hears the explosion. So if my supposition is exact, the enemy is not far away, but not yet in the city. And I suppose that tomorrow we will have a terrible battle in the streets, unless the whole army leaves. The Turks have tried to blow up the mills. They already did not exist. Doubtless they were trying to stir up a commotion, but they did not get what they wanted. I'm writing now which is 8.15 in the evening, and I hear a car stopping in the parking around the Rosary Convent. Another reason that confirms my belief that the Turks are still owning the city. Now I wonder, what has become of Ufian and the other Zionists? Arif Bey came this afternoon to ask me to turn the Jews that I have hidden in the consulate. 
I answered him that since my promise is until tomorrow to turn the Jews to the governor, I will not turn them until that date. But it seems to me that they should depart tomorrow. Oh, I forgot. This afternoon I saw the line cut that brings electric light to my house. Ajid Umar saw the driver of the automobile that just arrived and it seems to him that it was for the Austrian consul. The latter will depart this evening. I fear the police may find and detain the famous Zionist tonight. I'm falling asleep because of the emotions of today. So I decided to take a horizontal position. Right. At what time will the noise of a machine gun begin again? Yusuf came to tell me that Ash has misunderstood and the crowds left some time ago. May God keep him safe. I'm going peacefully to bed. Good night. The day after, as we know, the British entered Jerusalem. Better say, the Turks, the Germans, the Austrians, they all left. And as you remember, a small party, joined by other parties, began to wander in the outskirts of the city, tried to find the British, and eventually surrendered Jerusalem. But let me close this episode with an entry. Dating May 31st, 1915. The month is ending, but not the more or less naughty comments being made about the projected wedding of Jamal Pasha with a beautiful Jewish lady named Leah Tenenbaum. The news seems so unlikely to me that I gave it the least importance, but it persists and there is no one in the city who is not talking about it. The next episode and last one of the series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I will look at the life of Leah Tenenbaum. Thank you for listening to episode 4 of the series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.